Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, I'm going to temporarily suspend judgment on the book under review, and that's because this book does not fit easily into our usual categories of great, very good, admirable, or 50 feet of crap. You could certainly try to cram it into one category or another, but I suspect that if you did that, you'd find some part of this novel slipping outside that category's limits. The novel we're talking about is A Heart So White. It's by an author so widely acclaimed that by the time you hear this, they may have convened a special session of the Nobel Committee just to grant him his own emergency prize. That man is Javier Marias. A Heart So White was published in Spanish in 1992 and translated into English in 1995. Boom. The book puts you right into that heart so white from page one, although it does so in what will turn out to be its own characteristic fashion. The opening scene features guns, blood, and nudity, but it's not what I would call racy or fast-paced. In fact, it's more no-paced. On reflection, and one of the things the reader of this book is led to do often is reflect, the opening scene is more like a grand painting, something by Velazquez, like Las Meninas, where there are characters all over the place, background, foreground, in mirrors, all of them waiting as if on a movie set for the director to say, action. Only in this book, that word never comes. And as such, the air in this novel is very still. I did not want to know, but I have since come to know, that one of the girls, when she wasn't a girl anymore, and hadn't long been back from her honeymoon, went into the bathroom, stood in front of the mirror, unbuttoned her blouse, took off her bra, and aimed her own father's gun at her heart. Her father at the time was in the dining room with other members of the family and three guests. Let's take a moment to parse the layers of this scene. There is a girl, who is no longer a girl, a recently completed honeymoon, which means there's also a husband. There is a blouse, a bra, skin, and then the anatomy of what's under the skin. There is a father and his gun, which is taken by the daughter. Then, back in the dining room, there is another scene with food and guests. But, as with a painting, what actual activity there is in the scene is entirely in the reader's head. And this is the case for most of the rest of the book. While there is a lot going on, and I guess you could say a lot happens, not much of it is expressed on the page. Reading this novel often feels like taking a pick to a marble slab, complete with the assumption that through sufficient effort, the shape within the marble will eventually reveal itself. After describing the initial scene in elaborate detail, the first-person narrator, Juan, takes the reader decades and miles away to his own honeymoon in Cuba. It's towards the end of the honeymoon, and Juan's new wife is unwell. While she rests in bed then, Juan gets some fresh air on the balcony. That's when he spies, in the distance, a woman pacing the pavement. The woman is wearing a tight white dress, carrying an oversized purse, 
and walking on high heels that she stabs into the pavement every time she turns around. She's waiting for someone, that much is obvious, and Juan passes a lot of time watching her wait, which at the same time means the reader is also watching and waiting. Then, quite suddenly, the woman turns once again, and instead of doubling back on the patch of pavement she's been treading for what seems like ages, she begins to approach Juan's hotel, where, it would seem, she's found the person for whom she's been waiting. And to everyone's surprise, it's Juan. As she walks towards him, she begins waving her arm and yelling threatening words. This goes on for a long time, this monologue directed by the woman in the square at the man on the balcony. And as it unfolds, the reader is treated, if that's the word, to Juan's point of focus, which he describes in various ways throughout the scene. She raised one arm, the arm without the handbag, in a gesture that neither greeted nor beckoned. I mean, it wasn't the way one would beckon to a stranger. It was a gesture of appropriation and recognition, finished off by a swift flourish of the fingers. It was as if, with that gesture of the arm and that rapid flutter of fingers, she was not so much trying to attract my attention as to grab hold of me. She said things, all accompanied by that same gesture made with her arm and her mobile fingers, that grasping gesture, as if she were saying, come here, you, or you're mine. She continued to approach, growing more and more indignant at my lack of response, still repeating the same gesture with her arm, as if she had no other means of expression, just a long bare arm beating the air, her fingers simultaneously darting forth for a moment as if to catch me and drag me toward her, like a claw, you're mine, or I kill you. She gave three more steps without looking up, and when she did, when she opened her mouth to insult me or threaten me, and began for the nth time to make that prehensile movement, like a lion's claw, the grasping gesture that meant, you won't get away from me, or you're mine, or I'll see you in hell. She left it raised in midair, her bare arm frozen in action, like that of an athlete. Okay, so far so good. Except it turns out that the woman has mistaken Juan for a man who, halfway through the tirade, appears on the balcony next to Juan's, a man Juan can only describe as wearing his watch on his right wrist and possessing a notably hairy arm. This mistaking of one for another, even at this early point in the book, seems like a clue to one of the major themes of the novel, though the reader couldn't yet say for certain what that theme actually is. Is it, for instance, related to another seemingly developing theme, the idea that marriage is a trap? The cause for, if not confusion, then lack of certainty, is in the narrator's penchant for making broad statements that he then repeats, and repeats again, like headlines crawling across the bottom of the screen. And one of them is how his marriage meant that he had to confront the question of what next, and that at the same time, he could no longer picture his future in the abstract. In quasi-scholarly fashion, Marius responds to his questions through different styles and at different scales. Certainly the first scene in the book, the newlywed committing suicide, is one response to this question of whether marriage is a trap, a theoretically dramatic one. But after that comes a more ponderous response, where the narrator elaborately describes being dutifully accompanied home after the movies by his wife, how the mood of his honeymoon has dampened, rather than enlivened his world, and how other women, like the woman on the plaza in Havana, may appeal to him, literally and aggressively. Then, added to the dramatic and ponderous responses, there is also the oblique response, where the reader looks at the question, is marriage a trap, through an initially unrelated plot line that, as the story unfolds, comes to be a direct comment on the first and major plot line of the story we're reading. In other words, then, one plot line comes to stand in for another, which leads us back to tinkering with that original suspicion that the mistaking of one for another is somehow at the heart of this book, all of which leads us back to the woman on the plaza in Havana.
After recognizing the man she is looking for is the one that appeared next to Juan, we, alongside Juan, and at this point, Juan's wife, who is now awake, listen to the encounter of this strange man and strange woman through the wall that separates the two hotel rooms. Not everything between the strange couple is explained. Whole sentences are muffled or muted. But what's clear is that the man is married and the woman is not his wife. Rather, she is his regular mistress, visiting him in his room every time he comes in from Spain. Like many women in her predicament, she wants the man to leave his wife. He says his wife is already terminally ill, and it's only a matter of time until he's free. The woman persists. She wants the man to hasten his wife's end, which the man, bless his standards, finds unseemly. In this exchange, the woman is trapped, and the man is also trapped. And not to be ignored is the fact that they are also trapped in the room, and that Juan and his wife, overhearing them from the next room, and therefore unable to sleep, are also trapped. And so too is the reader trapped, being once again confronted with a scenario where the central concern is the death of a spouse, a return to the first pages of the book. So yes, the trap, in some ways like the trap of marriage, and once again the substitution of one for another. And you can now add to that another clue, the many scenes in this book involving mistranslation. Whether it's literal mistranslation on the part of the narrator, who is an interpreter, or the mistranslation of elements in the past by people who incorrectly remember them. Or, in this case, the shaky translation of events that are relayed by a tired and uncertain narrator listening through a hotel room wall. Having said all that, though, forget trying to unravel or connect these lines. What I would say instead is that beyond any particular idea or theme, the driving force in A Heart So White is repetition. Repetition is the story here. Repetition is what gives the book its shape on the micro and macro level. It's in the woman pacing back and forth along the plaza. It's in the conversation she has with the man, which for the reader is both reminiscent and foreshadowing. It is in the hairy-armed man himself, who may or may not come back later in the book, preying on another single woman. Repetition is everywhere here. The question now is, what does this mean for the reader of A Heart So White? From describing the opening action and some of the structure of A Heart So White, I want to slide into trying to describe the experience of reading and rereading this circular kind of a book. For one, Javier Marias subscribes to the Jose Saramago school of paragraph construction, which is to say, construct one paragraph and put everything you want to say in it. Quick tip for beginners, do not stop reading A Heart So White in the middle of a paragraph. You will never find your way back in. Marias would also seem to subscribe to the Jose Saramago school of sentence construction. Make one long sentence, put everything you want to say in it. But in this case, the resemblance is superficial. Whereas Saramago, the person, comes across as humorless and, in his political statements, as thoughtless as any radical, his fiction writing is wry, wry like hell, and he has a sense of humor. His sentences are journeys where you go from one voice to another, an idea to its antithesis, and then back again, or somewhere else altogether. Marias's sentences, on the other hand, while long and often winding, do not have Saramago's lightness of touch. 
Too ounced is Senor Marius, never in danger of causing the reader to crack a smile, unless it's a smile of creeping insanity. The other effect of this cyclical world is suggested by one of the original thinkers on the matter of circularity in life, the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, whose musings on the eternal noon of the world gave birth to the idea, via Nietzsche, that we are living in the same day over and over and over again, and that, as a result, the scope of our actions is limited. Certainly this is the case in the world of a heart so white. Time passes, but the same things keep happening again and again, although I feel like I've mentioned this already. Rather than gaining any understanding of the world through movement or plot, as is typical in the novel, we get our understanding through the anti-narrative non-movement of this book, a kind of eternal stasis. So what does it feel like to turn the pages of a static novel? Better question. Are you even turning the pages? Answer? Not really. Reading this book is like walking through a major museum, looking at one masterful oil painting, then another, then another, then another. You stop in front of each canvas. You study it, looking to glean something from it, something beyond the brilliant surface. And because these are great paintings, and they are layered, subtle, and suggestive, you feel obligated to squeeze from this experience some observation you can call your own. But even if you do, the chapter ends and the process starts all over again. Another heaving, darkly lit canvas. You looking carefully for clues. Then repeat. Where's the gift shop again? I wonder if this interpretation is in some way suggested by the author. That's because there is a chapter in the book where we learn Juan's father, Rance, once worked in just such a major museum, the Prado, and that one day, while leaving work, Rance caught a guard, Mathieu, in the act of trying to burn a canvas. Please, this is not as exciting as it sounds, little in this book is, but it does count as a memorable scene. Mathieu has been guarding a particular Rembrandt for many years, and, as it turns out, has slowly been driven crazy by the fact that one of the women in the painting is facing away from him, hiding her face from him, and will forever be hiding her face from him. On this day, Mathieu's decided he's had enough. Rance tries to defuse the situation, saying, But Mathieu, do you really dislike it that much? I'm fed up with that fat woman, replied Mathieu. I don't like that fat woman with the pearls, he insisted. And it's true that Artemisa is fat and in the Rembrandt is wearing a string of pearls around her neck and her forehead. The little servant girl holding out the goblet to her looks prettier, but you can't see her face properly. My father couldn't resist giving a mocking or rather surprised and logical reply. Of course, he said, it was painted like that, with the fat one facing us and the servant girl with her back to us. The pyromaniac, Mathieu, flickered the lighter off for a few seconds, but didn't remove it from the canvas. And after those few seconds had passed, he lit it again and held it close to the painting. He wasn't looking at Rand's. That's the worst thing, he said, that it's fixed like that forever, and now we'll never know what happened next. You see, Senor Rand's, there's no way of seeing the girl's face or of knowing what that old woman is doing in the background. All you can see is that fat trout with her two necklaces who never actually picks up the goblet. I wish she'd just bloody well drink it and give me the chance to look at the girl, if she'd turn around, that is. Mathieu, a man who knew what painting was about, a man of 60 who'd spent 25 of those years in the Prado, suddenly wanted to know what happened next in a Rembrandt painting. It was absurd, but Rand still kept trying to reason with him. But you know that's not possible, Mathieu, he said. The three figures are painted, can't you see that? Painted. You've seen plenty of films, and this isn't a film. You must see that there's no way you'll ever see them looking any different. This is a painting. A painting. 
That's why I'm going to do away with it, said Mattia, again caressing the canvas with the flame from the lighter. Mattia, man, I know how you feel. Most readers of this book will know how you feel. The eyes get tired, and so does the brain. Milan Kundera, a writer who comes in for some unusual direct criticism by the narrator of A Heart So White, perhaps because Kundera and Marias are both writing about eternal recurrence, and Marias thinks his interpretation is better, points out in his book, The Art of the Novel, that there is what he calls an anthropological limit to good works of art. Kundera is referring specifically to length. A novel can't go on for 3,000 pages. A symphony can't last nine hours, and so on. In the case of The Heart So White, the problem isn't the passage of time, it's the lack of it, this everlasting stasis. And as with the case of Mathieu, the museum guard, there was only so long that I could tolerate looking at Marius's paintings. I make the structure of A Heart So White more important than its characters, its plot, its style, sound like a bad thing. It is, and it isn't. This last scene in the museum says something about the experience of reading A Heart So White. It's more pleasurable to think about, to reflect on, than to read. For instance, the novel at times runs alongside the story of Macbeth. As with The Sound and the Fury, the title of this novel is also taken from a line of Shakespeare's play. So even when A Heart So White becomes, at a certain point, no fun to read, and it does, it remains stimulating to think about. So is all this intellectual activity generated by A Heart So White the reason why it's so widely acclaimed? Is it the reason why Marias has entered that stratum of international novelists that we must say are writers of great books for fear of looking like Philistines? From my point of view, a great book is one that appeals to all parts of the reader. This was a book that occasionally tested the mind, while also failing that same mind. More than once, for example, the narrator seems to suggest that repetition in his story is merely a reflection of history repeating itself in the wider world, one of the great asinine lines of all time. The fact that A Heart So White is better as a reread than on Initial Encounter is, it's true, kind of funny considering the motif of repetition, but to my mind the fact that it loses the reader on that initial reading and doesn't seem to care for him or her counts as a major fault of the work. Marius's stock, and I'm certain of this, is not going anywhere but up in the coming years. No matter how lofty it becomes, though, I'm not sure if I'm going to go back to his books. With that, I would like to say thank you very much for listening. Next up on Burning Books is a review of the frequently fascinating Seven Days in the Art World by Sarah Thornton. I like hearing from you, so please send me notes, nasty and nice, either via Twitter, at burningbookspod, or email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So... Let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. And as always, go Jays. Come closer to Radio Latopia.